know uh, the truth here, and Father, that it would be an encouragement to us, and also at the same time, it would be a challenge to us, a challenge that enables us or causes us then uh, to rely upon you, to trust you for its fulfillment. So we pray that you would do all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, as we come again to this particular passage, stretching it a bit with some verses, but as we come to this particular passage, we understand, we understand Paul's point, and his point is that no matter what happens in life, for them, whether Paul came to visit them or whether he didn't visit them, whether they suffered, whether they didn't, whether they were in prison, whether they weren't, uh, in our case, whatever happens in the context by way of circumstances of our life, the will of God for us is that we live, conduct ourselves, live a life worthy of the gospel. That is to say that our citizenship, that is how we live in the kingdom of heaven, our citizenship is to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, meaning that we're to live in such a way that shows the value of, the worth of the gospel. Thus, we, as Paul is exhorting this group of people, we're to live in such a way that the gospel advances, that the gospel goes forth, that the gospel is declared not to declare or advance the gospel. Not to do so would be to live unworthy of it because it's worth the acceptance of all people. It's that valuable because we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that there's no name given in heaven or on earth, no other name given in heaven or on earth by which men, by which people can be saved. This is it, only by way of this gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that this is pleasing to God because the gospel is the glory of God in the face of Christ. The gospel is the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is, as we declare it, then Christ is glorified. And when Christ is glorified, God is glorified. Because when we declare the gospel, we declare ourselves to be sinners, Christ to be the Savior, that we need him. And that it's only by way of his work on the cross, our penalty paid, by his righteous life, that we are saved. So the glory goes to him. So we're to live worthy of the gospel, that our citizenship is to be worthy of the gospel, that, that our lives reflect the great worth of the gospel of Christ. And we do this, Paul says, in the face of opposition. In fact, this opposition is given to us 
by God. The suffering that comes because of it is a gift from God to us, enabling us in the midst of this suffering, to, as we continue to walk in it, to show forth the glory, the greatness, the worth, the value of the gospel. So it actually helps us to show the value, the worth, the greatness of the gospel. So in the face of this opposition, we're to show forth the, worthy of the, the worth of the gospel, and we're to do so without being afraid by this opposition. And the reason that we can be unafraid as we face this opposition is because God is with us. The worst that the opposition can do to us is kill us, which is only a temporary inconvenience because if we die as believers, most especially showing forth the worth of the gospel, Jesus said that he will acknowledge us before his Father, which means received by his Father. Therefore, we receive eternal life. So, if all they can do is kill us, since they can't destroy our soul, we shouldn't fear them. In fact, we needn't be afraid of them, nor the suffering that comes through them, because God loves us. And he says he knows even when a sparrow falls, and we're worth so much more, so we needn't fear them. And God is with us, and God is for us. So we needn't fear this enemy. Now, again, all of that, you know, that's all review. But please understand that in the midst of that, that's a sign. It's a sign to those who oppose us that they will be destroyed. And it's a sign to us that we will be saved. But there's one more piece to this. And the piece to this is that as we stand before this opposition and as we strive together we do so just like that that is together notice what paul says in verse 27 he says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or am absent i may hear of you that you are standing firm but notice in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He said there's a togetherness in the midst of this, and you need to stand firm, one spirit, and strive together, side by side, with one or in one mind. One spirit, one mind together. And if you're not doing this together, then you're not living worthy of the gospel. So I want to ask today two questions, really. Uh, we may not finish the second question all the way, but that's all right. The Lord comes back. We don't need to know. And if he doesn't, we'll pick it up again. But two questions. One is, why? Why is it that it requires us to stand together for us to be living worthy of the gospel, for the gospel to be advanced? And then secondly, how do we do that? How do we stand together? Now, it shouldn't surprise us if we take up this first one first, that is, why must we? It shouldn't surprise us that Paul would say we need to be together on this. For instance, if you'll turn to John in chapter 13, we see Jesus beginning uh, this whole line of thinking for us. In John chapter 13 and verse 31, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. This was this Monday, Thursday, as we call it now in the tradition of the church, this Thursday evening when Jesus meets with his disciples and he gives them this mandate 
which is where we get our word Monday for Monday, Thursday, the mandate for, uh, that Jesus gives to his disciples. Verse 31 says, When he had gone out, that is Judas, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Now listen. That's not in the Bible. I said that. But listen. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now that shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is saying that we should love each other. Because Jesus himself came to love, and he came to love in such a way that no other person had ever thought about that kind of love before, ever demonstrated that kind of love before, that he would die, that he would give his life, not only for his friends, but for his enemies, that he would die, that he would give his life. And so, if we're going to be his followers, it shouldn't surprise us that he calls us then to love as he loves. But here's the thing for this morning in verse 35. He says, by this, that is, you loving each other as I've loved you, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is to say, if you don't love each other, this watching world will not believe that you are my disciples. They won't get it. They won't understand because you won't be reflecting me. Now, how is it that people see God? How is it that they really see him? Now, we declare him all the time. I hope we speak of him and we can see him in some sense in creation. But how is it people see God? Because no one has seen him. For instance, John writes, turn back to first, or not to first John, but to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and verse 18. The Apostle John writes this, John 1, verse 18. He says, No one has ever seen God. There's a pause there. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John is saying, No one's ever seen God. However, there is one. Who has made him known and the one who has made him known is the only God that only God is the Lord Jesus Christ has made him known he's the one in whom we see God that's why Jesus could say to his disciples if you have seen me you have seen the father now I don't want to show of hands but how many of you've lately seen Jesus and so if we say that we see God in Jesus, but Jesus ascended a long time ago. How is it that people now see God? Turn to 1 John in chapter 4 and verse 12. Same writer, the Apostle John, starts with the same line. No one has ever seen God. You think, come on, John, this is another letter. You need to write something new. So he twists just a bit. New spin. No one has ever seen God. You expect him to say, but, but Jesus has shown him. But he goes on to say this. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us that lives in that is lives in us and his love is perfected in us that is to say that people get a sight 
of God, when the people of God, in the name of Christ, love each other. No one's ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And when we love each other, it's proof God lives in us. People can see that, and they say, oh, yes, those are the disciples of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has revealed God. So you see, it's necessary for us to love each other, for people to get a glimpse, a real glimpse, a real understanding of God. Because you see, our lives define this love that we talk about. Our lives define the words that we use. That's why Jesus says, forgive as I've forgiven you. That is to say, when you forgive like I forgive, and then you talk about my forgiveness, people will have a, a, a category in their brain for that. When you love the way that I've loved you, people will have a category in their brain like that. That's why Paul tells husbands, love your wife as Christ has loved the church. Why? So that people will have a category in their brain, even minimally, what Christ's love means. Wives, submit to your husbands. And everything is unto the Lord. Why? So, so the return love that Christ deserves should be seen at least minimally from a wife. So husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church so that they'll have a, a category in their brain to understand this. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Accept one another, Romans 15, as Christ has accepted you so that other people understand what we mean when we say these words. So love, so there's a sense that people understand who God is and what his love is. That's why it's really necessary. Um, and not only are we to love the easy ones to love, but we're to love the difficult ones and love ones in difficulty. For instance, turn to Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 32. Hebrews 10, verse 32. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who've suffered, and he writes this. He says, but, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. He's saying, listen, Sometimes you yourself received the suffering. Sometimes you didn't receive the suffering, but you partnered yourself with, that is to say, you hooked up with those who were suffering. Now, do you know how dangerous it is to hook up with those who are suffering for their faith when you hold that same faith? I mean, play connect the dots. They're in prison because they believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. What should I do? <laughs> Should I go to them, or should I stay away from them? Knowing that if I go to them, some oppressor might be smart and say, ah, oh, there's another believer in Jesus. Let's throw him in prison too. He says, so sometimes you suffered, but sometimes you partnered with those so treated. Now, on what basis would they do that? Well, verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. You loved them. What was taking place in their life moved you because they too belonged to Christ. For you had compassion on those in prison. And notice this. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That is to say, when you visited them, 
the authorities came and took all your stuff because you had partners with those in prison. And you partnered with those in prison because you had compassion on them because they too were believers in Christ. And you lost all your stuff. In fact, when you learned that they were taking it out, you went and you helped them because you knew you had a greater and more lasting possession in Christ. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 25. You know the story, but turn there anyway so you know I'm not lying. In Matthew 25, when Jesus was judging and talking about the judgment of the separation of the sheep uh, and the goats, this isn't a special judgment that comes different from the final judgment, but this is just another look upon that judgment. And Jesus is talking about the judgment of, of the nations. And so in verse 31 of Matthew 25, we read this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, on what basis would we find a brother of Jesus that is a believer in Christ in prison? Now, thankfully, we find Christians in prison these days because there have been some who have witnessed to prisoners and they've come to faith. And so we have brothers and we have sisters in prison. We must visit. We must love as Christ has loved them. But also, in the, if you read through the New Testament, you find Christians in prison because of their faith, because they're believers in Christ, and thus they've been imprisoned. If you read in the, uh, in, in the book of Acts, especially the early chapters, you find many of our uh, beloved apostles in prison for their faith. And you find one who is going to be one of our beloved apostles putting them there, that is Paul or Saul of Tarsus. Again, the danger of visiting those in prison who are identified with Christ because it puts yourself at risk. And why would you be willing to do that? Because the gospel is worth it. And we're to stand firm together, striving together with one mind, believing the same gospel, knowing this gospel's value. Not only all, all of that, but Jesus, as he prayed in John chapter 17, turn there. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, Jesus has been praying. This is, the, again, the night that he was betrayed. He's been praying for himself. He's been praying for his most immediate apostles, those ones right around him. And now he expands that prayer a bit. Notice in John 17 and verse 20, Jesus says to his father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those. 
So we've got these and those, at least in this version. Now the these are the ones who are Jesus' disciples right there at that moment in time. Those are the these. More specifically, the these. I don't want to use the word those. This is hard. It's like playing taboo. Uh, so these, these are these whom um, Jesus has spoken to about his spirit coming upon them and for them to take the gospel. So he's praying for his disciples, those disciples right there. But then he goes on to say, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through, those, through their word. Now, those, those are those who are Christians essentially from Acts chapter 2 on. Okay? So we have the these who are the believers at that moment in time and the those who are all the believers who will believe because of their message, because of their testimony from Acts chapter 2 on. So those, those include us. Right? Now, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they... Now, the calculation here is these plus those equal they. All right? Are you with me? Now, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they, the these and the those, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice. For the world to get it, for the world to believe that Jesus is really the Christ, we, the those, must be united with the these. That is to say, the gospel that we preach and declare must be the same gospel as those apostles declared because we're united to them. And we must be of the same purpose of those apostles as well because the those must be united with the these. That's why Paul could say in Galatians in chapter 1, to the church in Galatia, if you don't believe this gospel that I preach, because at this moment in time, Paul was one of the those, but he was connected to the these as one of the they. So, if you don't believe this gospel that I'm preaching, then you will be accursed. Because it's the same one. So you see, the church today is united with the church of the last generation, which is united with the church of the previous generation, which is united to the church in Acts chapter 2, which is united to the very apostles of Jesus, the these, all united, same message. Verse 22, The glory that you've given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that... The world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them even as you loved me. The proof, you see, to this watching world of the gospel is our love for each other as Christ has loved us and our union with these apostles. Okay? 
Uh, you're thinking, so what? This is huge. Now, it may not be huge to you today, but I want to put this in your mind so in 10 years, you will have meditated long enough that you'll know the hugeness of it. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 2. And verse 11. This is the hugeness of it. And this is why our being connected to each other, standing firm, one spirit, with one mind striving together, is essential to the worthiness of the gospel. Because if we don't do that, it means there is no gospel. But if we do that, then all who oppose us will realize their destruction is imminent. And some of them in the midst of that then may join us. And for the rest of us who believe, it will be a sign of our salvation. Verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul's writing to the Gentiles, and he's saying, you remember what it was like before Jesus. Before Jesus, you were completely outside of anything of God because what was happening with God was happening in Israel. And in order for anything to happen in you from God, you had to enter into Israel. You had to be circumcised, and you had to come under the law because at that point in time, grace even was administered in that law covenant. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. What was Jesus doing on the cross? You might answer, Saving me, meaning you, you could say it about me too, saving me, which is right. But he was doing more than that. He was doing more than just saving various individuals. He was, to glorify his father, saving a new man, creating, out of all the diversities, one new man for the purpose of worshiping God. That's what he was doing. That's why it's so important that we're united now and with all the Christians throughout history. Why? Because if that isn't happening, if there isn't that kind of thing, then Jesus didn't accomplish his task. And if he didn't accomplish his task, we're in big trouble. Okay? One new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, what Jesus was doing was building up, creating one new man. And he did it at the cross. 
For at the cross, you see, he took away all the hostility on the one hand between Jews and Gentiles because the law was a great hostility between them. Because in order for a Gentile to enter into the things of God, he had to become a Jew, he had to become an Israelite, and he had to enter into this law. And the Israelites often hold that, held that over the Gentiles so that it created this huge rift between them. So there was no easy flow into the kingdom of God. But at the cross, that was all broken. At the cross, Jesus died to take upon himself the curse of the law. And when he did that, he opened up the way to all who would believe, both Jew and Gentile and thus creating in himself one new man. Now, who represents that one new man? The church. And how do we know it's one new man? Because it's connected. It's connected to the apostles and then every generation since the very church of Jesus Christ. And you see, our existence announces to those who oppose us, you can't win. In fact, the love that we have for each other, especially in the midst of suffering, announces to all those who oppose us, you can't win. Because you see, if you take one of us or hundreds of us and you beat us and put us in prison, the rest of us who aren't in prison will go visit them. Because we're really not afraid of you. Because all you can do is throw us in prison and or kill us. But that really is only a temporary setback. That doesn't destroy us. And through the course of history, find the church growing and strengthening. Again, that line, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We, because we belong to Christ, can't be stopped. But you see, we must stay together. We must stand firm in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, and we must strive together in one mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we, that we agree on all the nooks and crannies of theology. But what it does mean is that we all agree on the value of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. It's the same gospel that Peter preached in Acts 2. It's the same gospel that, that these apostles of Jesus heard him teach. It's the same gospel that they preached and believed, and thus it's the same gospel today, and we all hold to its same value, that is to say, that it's worth everything. And it's worth everything because it means everything. And it means everything because it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. There is no other name given to men in heaven or on earth by which they can be saved. This is it. It's worth it all. Now, that's why, by the way, when we take up collection, that's a sign to unbelievers that we're still collected, that we're still a collection, that we're still a group, that we're still here. In fact, we take up that collection in hopes that, as those who observe and realize we're not going to go away, join us. And so we send out from that collection people to share that. Now, given all of that, how is it that we stay together? Now, we know that there are difficulties and have been throughout history in the context of the life of the church. We know there are differences 
theologically and their, their differences in style and their differences in vision on how ministry ought to get carried out. So how is it that we do this? Well, God was gracious to us to give us this thing called denominations, and that helps a lot. Keeps us from killing each other, and it enables us to agree on the value of the gospel with others who hold the faith as once delivered to the saints and yet differ stylistically and differ on a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but not to differ on the gospel, that there is one sacrifice for the sins of sinners, and it's been made by Christ and Christ alone, that there is one righteous and holy one and one alone, and it's his righteousness that is given to all who believe, and that very one is Christ and Christ alone. And that gospel is worth it all. That's what the church has held all the generations. We may baptize with different amounts of water at different ages. We may sing different songs. We may worship in different styles. And we may govern ourselves a bit differently. But that's the guts, you see. And that's what we all hold to. You see, it isn't so much organizationally as Paul speaks, but it's really relationally a matter of the heart. Notice how he says that we're all to stick together in verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, so, given all this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, that is, have you ever been helped by Christ? Have you ever been encouraged to know that you belong to Christ? If you're a Christian, you'd have to say, duh. See, right? So Paul's sort of playing here just a minute. He's really setting you up. He's asking you all those questions you know the answer to, but you know once you give them, you're in a hole. And he's going to get you with his final punchline. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if you've been blessed by being in Christ at all, any comfort from knowing that he loves you, any participation in the Spirit, any measly participation like being born again, anything like that happen to you? change your heart so that you could believe in Christ, go from death to life, from darkness to light, anything like that happened to you? Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy. You really want to know it will make me happy. You really want to know why I enjoy our partnership in the Gospel. Complete my joy by being of the same mind that is with Paul and with each other, by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, he says, from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. And then this phrase I didn't read as we began, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if someone had come to me and said, Bill, you can have the mind of Christ, you know what I think I'd have? I think I'd be able to know everything. It's the mind of Christ. He could look into people's hearts and know what they were thinking. He knew what was going on in every situation. I'd say, cool, give me the mind of Christ. But do you know what the mind of Christ is? This, who? Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mind of Christ is humility. Now that doesn't mean we sacrifice truth. That doesn't mean that humility says, well, you could be right or I could be right about the work of Christ. That's not it at all. Paul would never say that's humility. Paul would say, fight with all your might to the truth for the truth of Christ. There is only one truth about Christ. But in your relationships with those who believe it, don't think that you have a corner on the ministry that must get done. Because you see, God makes us all different. Some amongst us are teachers, and some are administrators, and some are encouragers, and some are people who love to give mercy, and some are people who love to get money, give money, and some are gifted evangelists. And you know how we can drive each other crazy in the midst of all that? You get administrators trying to organize evangelists. What's up with that? You get teachers trying to explain to people who need mercy why they're suffering. You have all kinds of problems. You have mercy people trying to explain detailed doctrine. <laughs> it's not working. And we can get on each other's nerves and we can criticize each other. And then you get, get a ministry over here that's working really, really well or a church that's really functioning well out here and everybody goes, well, we have to be like that. And so we begin to compete against that particular ministry. And that we're, we're going to show we're better than they are. We're going to grow faster. We're going to have more money, more souls saved, whatever is the standard. And so we begin to compete with that. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Paul says, have the mind of Christ about you. He was the glorious one. He had the right to worship. That is to say, as he walked down the street, it was his right to have everyone fall on their face before him and worship him. But he did not regard that glory a thing to be grasped, but rather humbled himself. He set it aside. And so if Christ can do that, the one who deserves this glory, how about you and me? I don't want to break this to you real hard, so I'll be gentle. We're not all that glorious. And yet we grab a hold of glory with all our might. And he says, don't. Be humble. If you want to hold together, if you want to stand firm together, don't be so proud that one of your brothers and sisters gets arrested and thrown into prison that you don't go visit them. Don't be so concerned about your own interests that when one of your brothers and sisters makes a fool of himself or a fool of herself for the sake of the gospel that you don't go and support them. Don't, don't be so proud that, that when you find that you have brothers and sisters outside of your sphere of comfort in terms of culture and, 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 and finance, that you don't go to them and love them. Don't, don't be so concerned about your own interests that when you're inconvenienced by others in the body of Christ that you think of your interests and forget about them. Don't be the kind of person in the midst of the body of Christ that's embarrassed by another Christian or intimidated by another Christian Put their interests ahead of your own as Christ put our interests ahead of his own and love them. And you know what happens when we do that? Those who oppose us say, we can't beat these people. We can't win. We throw them in prison and the rest of them come and visit them. We put into poverty a bunch of them and the rest of them give them their food. We can't 
We can't do this. We can't win. It's a great story told about a Romanian pastor, Joseph Tan. He spoke. It was not a popular uh, um, lecture series at the seminary I attended a number of years ago, and I think it was just bad marketing. The, the title of his lecture series was this, Toward a Theology of Martyrdom. And he wondered why no one wanted to come. Karen actually went with me, I recall, and wanted to talk to him later about some issues, which she did. She went into a little room with him, at which point he announced that there was still a contract on his life. <laughs> she didn't really want to see the results of this lecture series that closely, but she stayed and heard what he had to say. Because he was in Romania at a time, still there, but it's freer now, but he was at a time when there was great oppression against Christians. He had a number of very significant events in the course of his life. One is when he was at a seminary, a liberal seminary, early on in his, in his career. Uh, they had told him that the Bible wasn't true, that it was just a series of metaphors in the scripture. And he left the seminary and they asked him why he left and he said, because I'm not willing to die for a metaphor. If this isn't true about Christ, then I'm not willing to die because that's what I know must take place. That's what I know will happen if I claim Christ in this day and this time that I will surely die. And so he went on to another seminary to study the truth. But a point after seminary came as he was pastoring a church and the opposition was there and the church was supporting him. And he and his wife met one night in their apartment and they said, it's most likely that one of us, if not both, will die. And therefore, at that moment, that evening, they dealt with that. And they dealt with that by saying, God is with us. God is for us. The gospel is worth, us, worth it. Death is only a temporary inconvenience. And so when the authorities came for him, his wife was calm. And she simply was able to kiss him goodbye because she knew that God was with him. And she knew that God was for him. And she knew that the gospel was worth it. And she knew that the people of God throughout all of history had had the same fate upon them because it was the same gospel as the apostles preached and the same value on that same gospel. In fact, the time came when he was in prison where they took him and they beat him within an inch of his life. Though he could barely speak, it dawned on him while they were beating him that it happened to be Good Friday. And so he turned to them and he said, thank you for beating me on this day. Could have been the day before, could have been the day after, but thank you for beating me on this day because now I know better than I've ever known before in my life the love of Christ for me. During his imprisonment, the church would come and try to feed him and try to help him. And the guards would see this. A time came when they simply released him because they said, we can't beat him. Standing firm, one spirit. Striving together, one mind. For the sake, for the faith of the gospel. That's a sign to all who oppose us, that they will be destroyed. And thus we pray 
that as they see us stand firm, striving together, that they know they can't defeat us, so they'll actually join us. And it's a sign to us, you see, that this work of Christ is true, that he has a people that he promised to Abraham that does come to fruition in Christ and continues on and on and on and on and on. I know I'm over time, but that's why we need Sundays. You can't survive without Sundays. You can't survive without gathering. You can't, we can't survive without getting a sense that this is bigger than me because it was never meant to be just me. It was never meant to be just for me. That old line that if you were the only one who ever believed in Jesus and da 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 and he'd die for you. He died for his people. He knew it wasn't going to be just you. That's pretty arrogant, really, but let's not go there, okay? Let's just, he died to create this new man, and so we need Sundays to gather together. And when we're here, we need to, we need to think through these walls. We need to think about all the Christians that are all over this community worshiping today. We need to think through the fact that there are people all throughout this state that are worshiping today. And God is so cool to do this whole, you know, daylight thing, hour by hour, to where people worship him all day long. You know, because, you know, it might be whatever time it is here, but it's different times all over the globe. It's really cool. I mean, God said, you know, I like this, everybody worshiping at the same time, but let's put a new spin on this. And let's just see if we can't keep people worshiping all Sunday. But we need that because it's proof to us when we look around. Don't sleep in on Sundays. Somebody needs you to show up so they can see your face and say, ah, yes, we're being saved. Ah, yes, it's true. And their enemies, your neighbors, some of them, they need to see people coming. You know, one of the coolest sights is to watch people come down this hill. There's a stop sign at the bottom now, so be careful. You know, be careful. You do want to see Jesus, but not at the intersection of Peterson and Castle. Now, one of the coolest sights is seeing these cars come down, you see. That's an announcement to this whole community. The gospel is true, that what Jesus promised to do, when he said this promise to Abraham, they 